Uh, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and as always, joined by our illustrious panel. Uh, today, we have Jim Reed, Rob Washam, Andrew Feist, John Somsky, and Chris Jones, so far anyway. Uh, thanks to our official sponsor, Running Aces Racetrack Casino and Hotel, and our other podcast sponsors, Learn Pro Poker and Website Amp. This is episode 181, and today we are going to be joined by Andrew Brokus. Uh, but before we bring Andrew in, just real quick, uh, make sure you go to rec.poker slash resources. It's your one-stop shop for all of our partnership stuff. You know the drill. we got a million relationships. Go out there, check it out. All kinds of specials going on. Uh, one thing that we're highlighting this week is the Red Chip Poker guys. Uh, if you go out to Red Chip Poker uh, slash Rec Poker, use the code Rec Poker, uh, you'll get a free week of Core, uh, which is their their main training uh, for players. So go check that out. Uh, so with that, uh, we're going to welcome back in a good friend of Rec Poker. Uh, Andrew Brokus is a professional poker player. He's a writer. He's a coach. Uh, and in addition to offering private poker coaching, Andrew is currently the host of the Thinking Poker podcast. He's an instructor with Red Chip Poker and Tournament Poker Edge. He writes regularly for 2 Plus 2 Magazine. And of course, he's an author because those of you who have been tracking with us uh, know that we did the book study. So welcome back, Mr. Brokus. Thank you, guys. It's good to be among friends. Well, you know, I wouldn't go that far. You you said I was a great friend of the show. That was your word. Well, you're a friend of the show. Now. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a one-way street. You're a friend of the show, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we like you. Because I, mean, no, uh, I need to borrow 20 bucks. <laughs> All right, uh, John Sonsky will be right on top of that for you. <laughs> no, we, we, we had... just love, love hanging out with you, man. And so uh, we appreciate all you've done in partnership with the show. And uh, obviously, we've studied the book. So welcome back, young man. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit to start. And, and you know that we got a panel deal. So people will be firing, popping in and out of this thing. But uh, I want to start. I'm, I'm mostly curious about, uh, you know, we're, on, we're, we're now we got the new book coming out. We'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, uh, you got the first book that you put out there. You've got um, Play Optimal Poker, um, and we studied it as a group. And I'm kind of curious, now that some time has passed, where are you at with sort of what surprised you about the book, either the reaction to it, questions people have had, you know, any of that kind of stuff? Kind of how are you feeling about that first book now that we've had some time passed? Uh, I feel great about the first book. It had really a better, I mean, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I don't know that a book like this is really on the market period to compare it to. Not to, I mean, there's just so many variables when you're trying to compare your book to any, not that I have sales numbers for other people's books anyway, but I really had no idea what the market for a book like this would, would look like. And, you know, it helped that I, I had a deep run in the 2019 main event right yeah. around the time that the book came out. So that got a lot of publicity, got mentioned on ESPN, uh, but I definitely sold, you know, on the high end of what I thought the, the book might sell. And it's continued to sell reasonably well. I mean, obviously with me releasing a second one, there's been sort of a renewed interest in, in the first book. But um, even even before I announced that the, the second one was, was nearly ready, it was you know, continuing to sell reasonably well, you know, a year after it came out. So that, and that was part of why I was motivated to write a second one, which I was not something that I was feeling immediately after finishing the first. I, I wasn't yeah. like, oh yeah, let's, let's go do another year of that. Um, but it worked out well that I did because, you know, uh, poker rooms were closed down and ended up being very useful to have a thing that I could do uh, while sitting in my home for uh, days on end. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that that sales went well. Anything surprise you? I know that you're pretty plugged into feedback and, you know, the folks that are fans of yours uh, through the podcast and everything else. Uh, anything kind of surprise you as far as what really resonated with people that you weren't expecting? Um, maybe it was more the people it resonated with. Mm. Uh, you know, I, w- I was thinking of it as kind of an introduction to game theory or an intuitive explanation of game theory for people who are not accustomed to using it in their in their games. I subtitled the book Game Theory for Everyone, but what I what I really intended with the everyone was, you know, for people who think they don't need game theory. And uh, what surprised me was the number of um, what we might call like name players, you know, people who I sort of think of as peers more so than people that I'm like teaching poker to. Um, you know, other professionals, very successful people who were saying that they found the book helpful. And these are people I know who have, you know, done their own work with solvers. Like, these are not people who are new to game theory. But I think even a lot of those folks, even if you know, you know, kind of, you're able to do useful work with a solver yourself or do some game theory thinking. Uh, it, I think even a lot of those folks didn't necessarily you know, fully understand some of the foundational concepts in the way that I explained them. Um, so that was really gratifying to hear that it had been useful uh, to, I guess, a more illustrious <laughs> poker crowd than I had uh, envisioned. Yeah, it felt like, you know, from reading it, it felt like it did, it would span kind of that entire spectrum. I, I think there are people that are sort of like, yeah, even among the recreational players, you know, I, yeah, I know a GTO is blah, 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 blah. And then you start asking them or you start getting into it a little bit. And they're like, oh, wait, maybe I have no idea. And I think your book, you know, capitalizes on that as well as the people like us that are going, what is that GT? What now? Is that a kind of car or what is that? <laughs> and I would also think that, the, you know, you had mentioned last time you were on here that the process of writing the book had crystallized some of your own information and a few of the outcomes of it were not completely intuitive and you found yourself even being slightly surprised by them. So I think it makes oh, sense when you, when you have someone who sums something up in a comprehensive manner, even if you basically understand it, you're still going to maybe walk away with a higher level, a better higher level image or a few nuggets here and there. So, and really good book. Thank you. You know, I, you certainly like hope that when, when you write a book, but it's, um, it, it's nice to see it, you know, to, to get that confirmation that, um, that you actually did provide that, that folks. And I think this one in particular is uh, it's it's really a primer in sort of creating ways to think about poker in that game theory optimal way. And I think once you start training your brain to do that, you just start seeing those applications more commonly than you might think ordinarily. And just when you're in other spots that you thought might be actually quite routine spots, now that you're sort of used to looking for the stuff that you think about when you're thinking about these GTO plays, all of a sudden you're seeing that it's more relevant than you thought. I think that's a big part of it too. Well, I'm I'm very glad to hear you say that because that certainly was the central goal was to give people a new way of thinking about poker. You know, that that was... It's not really a book about how to play poker as much as a book about how to think about poker, right? So there, there's not a whole lot of, you know, here's what you should do in exactly this situation. And you can't do that. I mean, there's so many different situations in poker. I just think it's, uh, it, it's, it's just not a good approach to try to just learn situation by situation. Like, what should I do if I have ace king and I re-raise and then two people call me and then the flop is queen high. Like you just, you keep piling variables on there. Like you can't ever, you just, you have to know how to answer the questions for yourself. Just having someone give you answers. I mean, I think you, you have to do that to some extent when you're just starting out, but for people who want 
to get a little bit more serious about poker, I think the only way to do it is to learn how to think about it for yourself. I just wish there was some like next piece that could help us think more concretely <laughs> about some of the next steps we might use to apply those kind of lessons. Andrew, is there any way you could help us out with that? It's funny you should ask, Jim. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that really is like the, the second book is, is very much a sequel to to the first where uh, I think it's it's essentially like more things you should be thinking about while, while you're playing poker sort of once you understand the, the basics of game theory, how do you use it in some of the trickier decisions in in poker? So I should say, you know, this is not really a more advanced book in the sense that it's for the same audience. It's more advanced in the sense that you should read the first book before you read the second one. Like it builds on concepts from the first book, but um, it's not like for beginners and for advanced players or something. I mean, it's it's for the same crowd. And essentially the second book just digs into thornier concepts, trickier decisions, but they're still decisions everyone has to make. It's just that, you know, decisions on the flop are typically trickier than decisions on the river because there's a lot more that you have to think about. You have to consider not just, you know, this one decision, but I'm going to have to play the turn. I'm going to have to play the river. And those things have implications for your flop decision. Once you're on the river, you don't have to worry about quite so much of that. So did you go into writing the first book with sort of the intention of this is going to be a multi-volume sort of thing and it's just too much to put into one book? Or was this, you know, after you wrote the um, first book? I would book, say that's realized... a realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a realization about halfway through. So like I, I drafted the first book and then once I started going back through and, and saying, I was like, this is really started to feel like two books. Uh, and so I ended up sort of slicing it in half. And part of it was I wanted to make the first book approachable. I know that game theory is an intimidating enough concept for people that if I got into, um, if I got you know, too in depth into it, that was going to be a, a turnoff. So I, I decided to get a little ambitious, a little less ambitious with what I was trying to do with with the first book. And then, and some of it was just a question of of length and how much I could get done before the. Um, the start of the WSOP, which is kind of the, the deadline that I wanted to have for getting the book out, and which I barely made, arguably did not make, but close enough. But <laughs> um, well, you've got some time now before the WSOP. Then, so, yeah. So you... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean for, for the first for the book last <laughs> right, year, right, right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, I, I, so I, I sliced the book in half, and I was thinking that this, this writing the second book would be a little bit easier because I already had a lot of the material drafted. But once I started working on the second book and, and kind of got into it, I ended up having a slightly different vision. I decided to sort of focus it around the concept of range construction, and I didn't really end up using all that much of the material that I'd cut out of the first one. Um, I made the job much harder on myself <laughs> by uh, trying to get a little um, broader with what I was doing with it. But I'm, I'm I'm very happy with the outcome. You know, I, I came away with a book that, that I'm proud of that I think is going to be useful to people. And even more so than you know, what John was saying that I, I kind of taught myself a few things in writing the first book, uh, much more so the case with the second one. There were a lot of things where I, I mean, I was essentially setting a problem for myself that I thought was interesting, uh, finding in many cases, surprising answers to that problem, and then needing to go back and investigate it until I had a satisfactory explanation for those answers. And and I try to bring readers on that journey. Well, one of the things that I always think, you know, a good speaker does or a good author does is, you know, create situations and and stories or whatever that create a common language. And one of the things, you know, that's come out of your book, you know, the ace, king, queen, and just simple things like that, that when we're, you know, we're mulling over hands together, we're analyzing final tables, whatever it is, as as a as a community, oftentimes we'll put, oh, well, he has, a, he has a king there. He has a queen there. You know, kind of that, that language that's created. So I appreciate that because it takes these sort of these these intense sort of topics and says, okay, 
we can bring it down to a language that we can just use. And we all immediately know what we're talking about when we say, oh, he's got a king. Why is he betting a king uh, in that spot? Uh, I, I certainly love to hear that. That's, um, you know, uh, if, if, if I, I, I don't even know that I could have told you that was a goal in writing the book. But now that you say it, I'm like, yeah, that's certainly something that I hope the, <laughs> the book would provide. Well, yeah, so I that, think, I think really awesome any, kind, any kind of those tools that you can embed that you just kind of naturally do because you're a storyteller. I think those are huge in promoting the book. Because we didn't talk about that. We talk about the king and if somebody says, what are you talking about? Oh, you got to read this book and then you'll just kind of get it. You're missing out if you haven't read the book. <laughs> I, I'm curious. I'm curious. Well, you know, you're, you're happy to know. <laughs> as, we, as we talk about the second book a little bit, I know, you know, we're going to have a few folks uh, that are listening to this that, that maybe even haven't heard of you, but they haven't heard of the book. They weren't part of the book study. They don't really know what it is. They're just kind of jumping in now uh, that we're in this period of, you know, hey, they're, they're home. They've got some time. Uh, they're, 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 they're listening in and they're saying, well, I kind of read some stuff about range construction. I know there's a bunch of tables that I've tried to memorize as far as what I should open in this hand, you know, here. And I've, I've heard of game theory optimal, but I'm a rec player. So shouldn't I be more exploitive? Uh, you know, why do I really need that? I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, there's a lot of people that listen to the show that might be in that camp going, that just seems too hard or whatever, but sure. maybe, maybe give a little pitch about the second book about why this is a good book for for these folks who are playing, you know, the, the bar league home game kind of thing and who have maybe already, you know, have, have seen some opening hand charts. Why, why should they pick up this book? Uh, I would say the, the book is for two sorts of people, um, people who are curious about game theory and, and would like to know more about it. And also people who think that they don't need game theory, who have <laughs> some of those thoughts of like, oh, I'm just playing in like right. easy games. I don't need to worry about game theory. Uh, and the truth is, if you don't care about getting better at poker, you don't need to worry about game theory. Right? I mean, if, if you really just want to like play and have fun with your friends and, and you know, the, like understanding the game better isn't important to you. And um getting better at it, you know, or winning more money from it is not an especially important goal for you. I mean, it is a little bit of work and I understand that's not everybody's idea of, uh, of fun, but if you do want to get better at poker and, and understand poker better, I mean, I think game theory is for anyone who's ever been in a situation at, at a poker table where they weren't sure what the right play was. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that doesn't apply to you, like, great, hit me up. I would like to get coaching from you. Um, yeah. We're not right? all so, I mean, <laughs> like you want to play exploitatively when you know like if you're facing a bet and you can say to yourself uh oh you know that's steve fredland he never bluffs okay then you know what the right play is you fold you know, unless you have the nuts you fold um that's fine you don't need game theory to tell you that but if steve bets and you find yourself like boy i have no idea what steve is doing here but suddenly game theory can be useful to you uh, you know, it, it, it's a tool. It's not a, uh, it's, it's not a mandate, but it's a tool that I, uh, I think is not as intimidating as it seems. Um, so I try to explain it to folks in a way that will make sense to, um, anyone or nearly anyone. And, uh, I also, especially for the second book, I would say it's me doing some solver work so you don't have to, um, it's, I mean, you certainly could try to replicate what I'm doing or use it to motivate yeah. your software work of your own if you were inclined to do that. But I think for most people, um, what you really should, because there are amazing tools for learning about poker now. I mean, the ability to use a computer 
to help you. This is for every game, for backgammon, for chess, for all these games, you know, the, the, not just top players, but like even serious amateurs study with computers and poker is quickly becoming that way as well. This is not something that's like only for elite you know, top flight players. Only the elite players have to do it at an elite level, but you're going to get left behind in poker if you're completely unfamiliar with the idea of like using a computer to help you study. Um, so what the book does is, you know, I'm trying to show you what are heuristics that you can extract from seeing how a computer makes decisions about poker. Um, again, the idea is not we're going to try to solve every situation there is and memorize them. That's completely infeasible. Nor is the goal we're going to try to do exactly what the computer would do in this situation. The goal is to try to figure out when we look at, the, at a computer solution to a particular situation, how can we then explain that solution to ourselves, make sense of it, explain why does the solution look this way. Often computers will do surprising things. You'll say that, you know, it's check raising with a hand that you never would have occurred to check raise. And it's useful then to pause and say, well, wait a minute, why is it doing that? And, you know, essentially the book finds a bunch of interesting questions like that, prompts you to think about them for yourself. And then I walk through how I think about them, how I would recommend that you think about them. And ultimately, what lessons can you take away from this? The, the situations in the book are not arbitrarily chosen. They're chosen to highlight important lessons that I think are useful in situations that come up all the time. How do you decide which hands to check raise with on the flop? How do you decide which hands to call a check raise with on the flop? How do you decide which hands to three bet with on the flop? How do you, what, you know, what do you do if you check raise the flop and then the turn puts a fourth flush card on the board? Now what? You know, I mean, all these kind of situations that I know people find frustrating. Um, you know, I, I give you tools for how to think through those and uh, make good decisions. I love that. I, I feel, I feel a little way you're sort of equipping people to be mean to me, though, because but let's say, like, let's just take a John Sonsky, for example, who might check raise a flop. And I try to ask him, why did you do that? He just says, I'm playing optimally. He doesn't give me any answers. He can just say, I just been playing optimally. And then he doesn't have to actually be accountable for his actions. And it's very disappointing to me. Uh, it is absolutely my goal to train <laughs> you to be mean to your opponents. Uh, and Steve Fredland in particular, since we're not friends. Yes. Yeah, that's um, right. Well, that's right. <laughs> I'll get that 20 bucks in the mail tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, really, when I, when we talk about, you know, a, a different way of thinking about poker, uh, I think a lot of people's baseline is they sort of think about um, their own hand or sort of how to do what's best for themselves, which is, again, it's great if you can figure out how to do that. But the problem with it is if you're too explicit about trying what's trying to do what's best for you, you end up tipping your hand and showing him, oh, look, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Right? The, the more tr transparent you are about your own intentions and goals, you're telling your opponent, this is what I want. And then, of course, your opponent is, you know, if he's trying to win, he's going to give you the opposite of what you want. So the, the way that I try to reorient people is really, it's about giving your opponent tough decisions, being mean, essentially, putting your opponents in spots where they're like, oh, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do here. Mm -hmm. It's so annoying having Andrew on my left. I want to change seats. I want to change tables. Like, that's how you want to be at the poker table. You want to be the guy that people hate being in pots with. They hate having you on their left. Um, you're just a pain in the ass to play with because <laughs> you're giving them difficult decisions constantly. They never know what the right play is to do against you. They think they have a great hand, and all of a sudden they're in a spot where they're like, oh, I don't feel so good about my hand anymore. Or they finally do actually have a great hand and you fold and they're frustrated you know that's the goal of poker is to frustrate your opponents i love that that's a great marketing pitch right there say you know that person that you just hate to play with i'm gonna help you become <laughs> that person you know well, yeah, i don't know what's my goal i mean I when, when i 
was getting better at poker. It was like, how do yeah. I, like, who, who are the people that I find it difficult to play against? And like, yeah. more like them. I love that. I want, I want to make sure I take a breath here. I know these guys have, have all like read the book. They've all studied the book. So I want to make sure that I'm not just tromping on everybody else's questions. So is there anything, anything from the panel, either about the first book, second book, anything going on? I mean, I'm just, and I think a lot of people are are with me on this one, just personally disappointed that the words play optimaler do not occur. I don't see them on I the cover. Know. Do they do they appear anywhere in print, Andrew? Play optimal um, anywhere at all? Or my, is it just a huge letdown? It's a huge letdown. My girlfriend was kind enough to put together a, a poster for me from the, the Die Hard 2 poster that says play optimal poker to play optimal air. Uh, That's really good. I saw that one. <laughs> I have it as a, she photoshopped my face on there. She did a great job. Um, so I, I have some marketing materials with it. I, I honestly did consider naming the book that um, it is just too much of a liability. You, know, you can only put so many words on the cover of a book. <laughs> and I think it's really important to have range construction on the cover. But like, I do feel like I need to explain this. Play Optimal was a great title. A lot of people are disappointed that it's not on there. I, I fully get that. I'm disappointed myself. Um, I, I chickened out is the, is the bottom line. I, I sold out, really. So was that the working title for a while? That was the working. I'm trying to. I'm trying to make it the hashtag for talking about the book on, uh, <laughs> on Facebook. So feel free to to spread that around. But yeah, I I, I sold out. I went corporate. <laughs> well, anything else from the panel, guys? Otherwise, I'm going to switch gears. So if you have anything else on the play on the optimal stuff, I guess just one more question. We had uh, Nate on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we're getting Carlos on next week. So uh, I'm I think so jealous. I, I, I know, Carlos right? And like a month. <laughs> oh, um, you must be Jonesing, dude. Uh, so I think we, we're going to try and probably get Matt Glassman involved one of these days. Who else is on that group that we really have to get so that we can play all our uh, Thinking Poker podcast cards all at once, get them out of the way? Um, I would throw Clayton Fletcher on yeah, your, good call. the TPE podcast. I guess we haven't I mean, we had him on our show maybe four or five times, but then I've been on, on the TPE podcast, obviously, a number of times as well. Um, I, I consider him a part of the family. Uh, Gareth Chandler. Uh, it's been a while since we've had him on, but he used to be uh, a, a staple. Sweet. We'll put him on the list. Thanks, man. Well, I'm going to shift gears on you, Andrew, a little bit, just because I, I love the way that you think about all things poker and all things life. And I know maybe putting you on the spot a little bit, but I, I want to shift gears and talk about just kind of what's going on with the pandemic um, and not necessarily, you know, all the political stuff there at all, but just in terms of how it's, how you think it's going to change live poker, how you think it's going to change online poker, just what, what do you think the ramifications are, you know, long-term, you know, unless, unless you're thinking, Hey, one day we'll just kind of go back to normal and normal is normal. But, you know, how do you see this sort of playing out in the poker world? And that's such a difficult question to answer. That's why we brought you on the show. We'd like to, you know, aren't, aren't you a thinking guy? I mean, you have this. <laughs> Oh, I'm not saying I haven't thought about it. I just oh, haven't no. arrived at it's very many satisfactory complex. conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I'm, but I'm super curious kind of where you're at right now. And, you know, here we um, are June 1st. I'm, I'm very cautiously optimistic uh, in a way that I was not until recently. I mean, it does seem like as the country has started opening up, we have not seen I'm so reluctant to say this. Um, I don't, when is this airing? <laughs> this will be airing June 2nd. It's June 1st now. Oh, okay. I, right. you know, so, I'm, I'm not one of these five-week to yeah. five-week I mean, to release. So I, I will say, like, I have been, really, like, in the, the top 1% of people, like, taking the pandemic most seriously. Like, I was self-isolating well before there was, like, any kind of order for it. I've interacted with, like, almost no one on a face-to-face basis. I've been in, like, zero stores, zero 
anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I was not at all optimistic when you know we decided to start opening stuff up. It seemed to me that we were kind of doing it for the wrong reasons, uh, et cetera. And I mean, I still think we're doing it for a lot of the wrong reasons or doing things in the wrong order. I, I have a lot of opinions on that, but um, we have we have not seen the spike that I thought we might have by now. And I don't think it's like impossible that we might still, but I think that, you know, literally as of this date, um, I am questioning a few of my priors and that could, you know, certainly change again, but um, it's starting to see, I mean, I know that all of that said, like I do think poker rooms are a particularly bad place. Um, I mean, it seems like a lot of the transmission is occurring in spaces where people are, uh, let's say, indoors, sharing air, uh, extended periods of time. Uh, I don't think six feet is a magic number. So I think that, like, you know, the kind of proximity that you have with people at, at a poker table, like, people are not routinely wearing masks at a poker, poker table. They're pulling them down to drink beer. They're pulling them down to eat. They're sometimes just straight up not wearing them because they're belligerent, whatever. Like, um, you're passing, I mean, I, surface transmissions maybe less of a big deal than we uh, once thought they were, but like not trivial. And you are passing around a lot of durable surfaces at a poker table. I don't think hand sanitizer is a perfect solution for a lot of the same reasons. I mean, I think that poker rooms uh, are, it's going to be a while before you catch me in a poker room. <laughs> I'll say that. I'm going to need, I'm going to need to have a lot more priors refuted before uh, I'm, I'm showing up in a poker room or we're going to, need to have a vaccine or something. Um, I, 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 or at least, you know, much, but none of the solutions that I've seen proposed by Poker Room so far have seemed all that plausible to me. You know, what does that mean things are going to look like in a year or two? Uh, I certainly don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the, I mean, the WSOP too, is just just a gathering of that size and bringing in people from all over the world. It just seems like one of the worst things that that you can do. Even, even, if it seems that we can, you know, start to look like, oh, we can open up some schools, we can start to have restaurants being open even. Um, I still think poker rooms and casinos and especially the WSOP uh, are just, you know, from a public safety perspective, have to be at the bottom of the list. And, and obviously, you know, you, you sort of mentioned there's a spectrum of people. There's, you know, people away on one side where you are kind of like, I'm being ultra careful, ultra careful, and I tend to skew that way. And then there's the other side where there's nothing to worry about. Let's let's go. If if you were to say say a hundred you know hundred random people that you knew, how many of them do you think are going to go back and play live poker once it's quote unquote opened up? Like, how many of of these people do we think are going to go back into these rooms? Um, more than you might think. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who are just jonesing for it and are just going to have trouble staying away once it's there. You know, a lot of people, I mean, this is how, uh, it's how people make decisions. I mean, we're, we're, we're social animals. We look around to see what other people are doing. Once poker rooms are open, people are going to take that as a signal of like, oh, this is an okay thing to do or they wouldn't mm-hmm. be open. This is an okay thing to do or all these other people wouldn't be there doing it. Whether or not they think those things explicitly, it's just how human brains work. Um, I, I think once they're open, a fair number of people are, I mean, it all depends what happens, right? I mean, if, if it turns out that there is some sort of like high profile incident involving a poker room, like that could certainly, or just a high profile incident period, or there is a, you know, a big spike or outbreak or whatever, like that could certainly change people's behavior. But I think that you're going to see even people who have been pretty 
cautious. Like there'll probably be some people who will surprise you and be like, well, wait a minute, Joe went back to the poker room. Joe was, he was like oh, taking right. this seriously than anybody, but yeah, uh, Joe's still an animal at heart. So did you take on, I mean, as, you know, as a celebrity, as a well-known person uh, in the poker world, I mean, do you take, how, how, how do you then kind of make those decisions? Cause you're not only making decisions for yourself in a, in a sense, you know, if, if people say, Hey, Andrew went back or Andrew didn't go back, I think there are going to be people that are sort of following your lead on that. I mean, do you sort of internalize that or do you just say, well, I'm going to make my best decision and kind of whatever happens happens. Uh, I mean, I think there's not a lot of tension between those things. Like I think that um, the best decision, like, if the best decision for me is to not go, then like, that's also setting a good example. Like, I don't know that I would not go just for the sake of like setting a good example, but mm-hmm. um, I have been conscious of, you know, I have, especially early on, like before there was, I mean, maybe in like February, you know, before, so like, I heard about this first from Ed Miller and this is in maybe even in January, you know, he's, he, he was talking about uh, what was happening in China and that he didn't feel like people were taking it seriously enough. Like I kind of got, and I'm grateful for that. You know, like I, I feel like I got a, a head start on, on things and, and you know, various people in my life have told me then that I, you know, I was responsible for them being aware of like the, the risk and, and the danger uh, early on where, you know, and, and maybe even they thought I was being paranoid initially of, like, Oh, you know, he's, he's not, coming over to my house anymore like what's going on and then two weeks later the government's saying like oh no don't go to anyone's house I'm like oh maybe andrew was right after all <laughs> um, so i mean i i like like i'm i'm grateful to ed for having played that role in, in my life like i'm happy to know that i was able to uh, help some other folks be be safer um so yeah i mean I, i'm i'm happy to like talk about my own behavior and like once i've made a decision on what i think is is right if that can serve as an example to to um other people. Yeah, that's, that's great. I guess I do think about it to some degree, especially with regard to this is actually, I mean, Carlos is a good person to talk to about this because um, he often doesn't, I think, try to like serve as an example in a lot of ways that I think he could, or like I'll often hold Carlos up an example in a way that he won't. But um, when it comes to uh, coronavirus, he has been more explicit about doing that. And I think it is partly because, you know, he sees it as um well, one thing that we should understand in, in, in poker is, is exponential growth, right? And how much, you know, changing a single person's behavior, I mean, that potentially could mean saving dozens of lives. If, if, if that one person, you know, would then spread it to three or four people and each of those would spread it to three or four people and each of those would spread it to three or four people. I mean, this is actually kind of how PioSolver works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. you, can, you can have PioSolver, uh, you can give it betting uh options on the, the flop and the turn and the river. And depending on how many options you give it, that determines how long it takes PioSolver to run the solution on your computer and give you an answer. And if you give it very few options and you say, well, just consider one bet size on the river and one bet size on the turn and one bet size on the flop, it can give you an answer in like three or four minutes. If you tell it to consider three bet sizes on the river, that still doesn't make it take that much longer. You tell it to consider three bet sizes on the flop, and that grows exponentially. And so now it's got to consider if I bet half the pot on the flop, and then all these different things could happen, turn in river. Or I bet three quarters pot on the flop, and then all these things could happen, turn in river. And you see how much exponentially longer it takes your computer to run that program. Like that's essentially the same thing that's happening with uh, an infectious disease. <laughs> I mean, you, uh, the, the person at the base of the pyramid, uh, it spreads out to, to so many other people. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel like, you know, small changes in our behavior or small nudges to change other people's behavior. That's a context where they have, you know, particularly large consequences. 
Yeah. I've got one more question about this and then then we'll come back. If these guys have any like poker strategy questions, I'm just so fascinated by how you think. So we'll, we'll, we'll do this and we'll come back. If you guys have any strategy questions, we'll try to pick Andrew's brain. We have about 10 or 50 minutes left, but uh, you know, my, my question is sort of relating these two. So you've got play optimal poker. It's, you know, how do we think about poker in an optimal way using, you know, the Nash equilibriums and all the foundational elements of, of what optimal really means. And then you've sort of got this, this life stuff that we're talking about. And in a sense, you know, I, I feel like someday you need to write the book, you know, live optimal lives or something like that. And sort of, you know, <laughs> sort of. Oh, that would be LOL. I like it. Right. LOL. Right. I know. Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's bring it on. Let's bring it a new name. I'm sick of laugh out loud, which by the way, my wife initially, when I first, somebody sent me a, a text or something years and years ago and they ended it LOL. And she thought it meant lots of love and she got a little bit nervous. So we had to, <laughs> no, laughing out loud. Uh, so yeah, let's bring it, you know, uh, live optimal lives. But I, I'm curious uh, in, in bridging this gap, like, how do you see the application for like, you know, I, I, I'm such a believer that poker imitates life in so many different ways. Like, have you thought about that? Like this idea of playing optimal poker in terms of also like living an optimal life or, you know, how do you translate one to the other or, or have you tried to do that? Um, I think living an optimal life is uh, in, in, in like a very strict sense of that word uh, is not such a calculative um, process. But uh, I, I think there's more of like deciding what's important to you, um, which maybe the like poker stuff isn't quite so useful with. But uh, I do think there's a lot of individual things. Like, I mean, basically anytime we're relating to other people and our goals are not 100% aligned with those, sometimes even actually mm-hmm. if our goals are 100% aligned, but like game theory is, uh, I mean, really the, the, the definition of game theory is essentially when we're making decisions where the outcomes of those decisions are in part dependent on decisions that other people make, right, right. which is every aspect of your life, work, driving, marriage, parenting, uh, you know, relationships with your parents, um, all this kind of stuff. Like it's literally every aspect, I mean, any, anything and any interaction you have with other human beings, right? You know, your outcomes are in part dependent on the decisions that they mm-hmm. make. And likewise, you know, their outcomes are dependent on decisions that you make. And we're not always in a zero sum relationship the way we are in, in a poker game where it's like, well, anything that's good for me has right. to be bad for you. Um, and so, you know, game theory in real life, a lot of it is just about how do we make sure we arrive? If there is a solution that's good for both of us, how do we make sure we arrive at that? Right? Game theory doesn't have to be a competitive thing. I mean, I think there's, and those are some of the biggest tragedies, right? Is when there was a good solution and instead we ended mm-hmm. up with a bad one. Um, and that's, that's almost like the definition of a tragedy is, uh, you know, when you can, you can see what could have been and it didn't happen. And we end up in a situation that's like worse for both of us. Um, so, I mean, to some degree, game theory is about cooperation also, but I mean, there are times, I mean, I think it's helped me to be a more like competitive person in situations where I need to be, or, you know, I, I am probably more of a conflict diverse, uh, probably certainly more than like the average poker player. I'm sort of like conflict diverse person. So having tools that help me sort of, um, systematize, uh, Mm -hmm. conflict and be explicit about what do I really want to get out of this situation? Um, I guess that's a useful thing and you're to really to, to not be so motivated by 
ego or emotion or whatever else, which gives poker will really punish you for that. And once you get in the mindset of, I just want to punish that guy, I'm going to catch him. I want to, you know, show him who's boss, all that kind of thinking <laughs> at the poker table is just deadly. And uh, I mean, it, I think it's deadly in a lot of our real life interactions, also yeah. like literally deadly sometimes. But um, so, you know, just being able to stay focused on what the objective is and, you know, what do I really want to get out of this rather than uh, how is this person making me feel? I love that. And so, so my key takeaway there is, as I'm translating playing optimal poker to, to living an optimal life, collusion is okay in, in the living yeah. optimal life, right? Collusion is essential to an optimal life. Yeah, right, right. No, I love that. Well, we got, we got a few minutes left here, guys. Any, uh, anything from, from the book, anything from uh, strategy-wise that you want to pick Andrew's brain on? We have a, we have a quiet group here tonight. They must. I think your book must have just uh, worked. I guess they just they just all figured it out. Well, I haven't actually bought the second book yet because uh, I'm in the middle of the other book that we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, I'm looking at you know some of the the blurbs from Amazon on this, and it talks about bet sizing, equity denial, equity realization, balance, leverage, board coverage, and I'm curious about board coverage because I hear this term a lot and somebody says, well, you want to have the, these cards in your range because you want to have board coverage. But how important is that really? And how I does love, that I love that question. Thank you. Um, it varies a lot depending on the situation. Um, you guys have probably heard terms like uh, static or dynamic boards yep. before. Um, so kind of by definition, board coverage matters on dynamic boards. A dynamic board meaning one where the um, hand strengths are likely to change. And so if you think about a flop, like the example that I use in, in the book of nine, seven, six with two diamonds, you know, that's a flop where many hands that are strong on the flop, sometimes even the nuts on the flop, right? you have 10, eight for a straight. Certainly if you flop a set, by the time you get to the river, that might not be all that strong a hand anymore. And likewise, some hands that are not very strong on the flop, Maybe even you know a, a gut shot, backdoor draws. Those hands could end up becoming strong by the time we get to the river. And some boards are more prone to that than others. There are certain boards. A classic example would be a monotone board or three clubs on the board, where if you flop a flush, you probably still have a very strong hand by the time you get to the river, especially if it's a, an ace high flush. You know, like that hand is very likely to still, like it's hard, there's not very many, I guess if the board like double paired, turn and river, then you know, your, your hand uh, sort of got kicked in the, in the teeth there. But for the most part, you know, on a board like that one, you flop the nuts and you're still gonna have a very good hand going forwards. So when we're thinking about what makes a hand good or what makes a hand worth betting and raising and building a pot with, um, what we really care about, what we should really care about is, are we going to have the best hand at showdown or on the river? And I think a lot of people tend to focus too much on, you know, do I currently have the best hand? They get very upset, right? You know, I flopped a pair and you drew out on me. You sucked out. Nice catch. Nice river, right? I mean, that's all part of the game, right? Like, and there's some boards where it's a lot easier for people to draw out on you than others. So when you're thinking about building a pot, whether it's before the flop or on the flop or whatever, what you really want to be thinking about is, do I have a hand where when we get to the river and the pot is large, I'm going to be happy that the pot is large <laughs> because I'm holding these two cards. And on some boards, like I said, it's very predictable. You flop that nut flush, it's very predictable. You're still going to be happy on the river. On a board like 976 two-tone, there's lots of different ways the board could develop. 
And you don't want your opponent to be able to look at that board and say, oh, that board was no good for Rob. Rob bet the flop, and that means he couldn't possibly have backdoor hearts. Rob bet the flop. He couldn't possibly have a gut shot. He couldn't possibly have a set. You know, whatever. Or Rob checked the flop. He couldn't possibly have a set. He couldn't possibly have a flush. If you end up in situations where your opponents can definitively say the way that board came down was either, you know, definitely good or definitely bad for you, both of those things are problematic. If the board was clearly good for you, they're not going to pay off your value bets. If the board was definitely bad for you, they're going to be able to both value bet you and bet you off some of your better hands. So range construction or um, board coverage is about making sure not quite no matter how the board comes out because we don't necessarily have to care that much about edge cases. Like, it can be okay to just accept like if the board runs out in a really weird way, like maybe I just will be vulnerable and that's not worth building my strategy around that. But when there's things we can predict, like there's a flush draw on the board, right? I don't want it to be the case that I'm always betting my flush draws or always checking my flush draws because whichever one of those I do, I'm vulnerable. Right? When, when the flush does come in, if my opponent knows I always bet flushes, he's not going to pay me off. If, uh, if I check and the flush comes in and he knows I always bet my flush draws, then I'm very vulnerable because now he knows I don't have a flush. And so he can value bet with hands that aren't flushes. He can run big bluffs. Uh, either way, I'm, uh, I'm vulnerable. So board coverage is about not being predictable in future streets based on how the card came down. So it has to do with the range that you go into the hand with. And then once you're into the hand, how you play those different aspects of the board. In other words, if you do have the flush draws, sometimes you bet, sometimes you don't, and just keep them off balance. Exactly. You know, when I talk about like what are the heuristics that uh, a computer or a solver uses to construct its its ranges, and this is one of the, the big ones. And so, in, in terms of like how you think while you're playing, you know, a lot of people might just say, "Should I bluff with a flush draw? Yes or no." And that really is like the, is the wrong question to ask. It's not, should I bluff with a flush draw? What you need to recognize is you're going to have a betting and a checking range on most boards. And range construction means how are you constructing those ranges? You're going to have to put some flush draws in the betting range and some in the checking range. And there are heuristics for determining which are better for betting and which are better for checking. Generally, the more you care about fold equity, the more interested you are in betting. So often weaker flush draws are better for betting and stronger flush draws are better for checking. If you have the ace high flush draw, you might have a little bit of a chance of just having the best hand unimproved. And so you have a little less interest in getting folds. And it doesn't mean that that's a bad hand to bet, but I mean, it's a good hand no matter what. The nut flush draw is just like a good hand. Um, But in many situations, if you have to choose some flush draws to check or you have incentive to choose some flush draws to check, if you have a flush draw that also has a little bit of showdown value, that's going to be slightly better for checking. And flush draws that are a bit weaker and care a bit more about fold equity, those are going to be slightly better for betting. So that's the range construction way of looking at it. Rather than saying, you know, flush draws are good betting hands or flush draws are good checking hands, you know, we're going to bet some, we're going to check some. How do we decide which is which? Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That was kind of my follow-up question was with how you determine when you have to have a mixed strategy, how you determine what, how to make that mixed. And you just kind of outline that, but then how do you determine the frequencies? In other words, how much of your range should be the bluffing portion and how much of your range should be the, uh, checking portion there's a lot on that in the book um so i I have i introduced something called the range construction process 
And the first um, thing that you're doing is assessing both your and your opponent's ranges, thinking about uh, given everything that's happened up to this point, which player is likely to have the equity advantage? Meaning if we just looked at my range versus his range, which one had, would have more equity in equity calculator? And also, which player is more likely to have the nuts advantage, meaning which player is more likely to have extremely strong hands. Often, that's the same player. Extremely strong hands also have a lot of equity, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so you know, th those are two questions that you're going to consider in looking at a board. And those are things that determine how much betting or checking you should do in that situation. So the one that most people are you know, going to be familiar with, if you call a raise uh, from the big blind, so a player in early position raises, you call that raise from the big blind. Almost regardless of the flop, the early position raiser is going to have a stronger range than you are. There are just reasons why he needs a pretty good hand to raise from under the gun, and you don't need such a good hand to call from the big blind. Or if you both are just sort of playing correct poker and following your incentives, his range is going to be stronger than yours on most flops. Um, more often than not, he's going to have the nuts advantage, but there are some flops that can change that. So there are good reasons why we usually check to the preflop raiser. It's because your range is weaker than his. Um, on some boards where that are like better for you as, as the big blind, you have a little bit more incentive to do some check raising. On other boards where you don't have a nuts advantage, you're mostly going to be check calling. Um, so what you're doing is you're assessing your ranges in light, uh, your and your opponent's range in light of the board, and you're establishing some defaults. You're saying to yourself, how often am I going to be betting in this situation? Um, how often am I going to be checking? Am I, am I, is this a spot where I should be mostly betting or mostly checking? If I'm faced with a bet, should I be mostly folding, mostly calling, mostly raising? And I give you some tools for how to answer those questions. Um, the exact frequencies, I don't think you need to worry about. Like, I don't think the difference between, uh, I'm supposed to be raising 73% of the time here, but I raise 76%. Oh no, exploitable. Like that's not, um, I don't think that part is important. I think the getting getting the broad strokes right is correct. And I think people do get themselves into a lot of trouble when they come out betting in a situation where they really have no incentive to have a betting range, right? That's like a red flag. If I know this is a spot where a solver would never bet and you're betting, you know, I, I can often predict what kind of hand you have and find some really good exploits for it. That's like a big mistake that I see a lot of, you know, when I talk about um, that making that mindset, mindset shift from thinking just about what I want to accomplish with my hand versus how am I going to make my opponent's life difficult? That's one of the, the big ones that I see. You know, you've been, you checked and called the flop, you checked and called the turn, the river was a blank and suddenly you come out betting. This is not a situation really where you're supposed to do any betting at all. Uh, it's, you know, for those folks familiar with the ace-king-queen game, you have a range that's very heavy on kings, and kings are not interested in, in betting. So even if you happen in this instance to hold, you know, the river was a deuce and you have pocket deuces, so some, suddenly your marginal hand turned into a set. But that's, you know, it's so unpredictable that that happened that if you just suddenly come out betting in that situation, you're throwing up all kind of red flags. I'm like, wait a minute. This player has no incentive to bet whatsoever. Like 99.9% .9 of his range just wants to check here. Why is he betting? Something fishy is going on here. And now, you know, my, my, my hackles are up and I'm able to think exploitatively and probably take advantage of you. Whereas if you recognize this is a situation where I'm supposed to do a bunch of checking. So even though right now I have a hand where betting seems appealing, I can conceal the strength of my hand by checking it. 
And I want to be clear, the deception here is not coming from just doing the opposite of what your hand would like to do. It's not just because I have a strong hand, but I checked it. Ooh, that's deceptive. Just the opposite can be true. In situations where you're expected to do a lot of betting, like if you were the preflop raiser and it's a board that's very favorable for the preflop raiser and your opponent checks to you, if you have a very strong hand, you should probably bet with it because that's also what you're going to be doing with many of your weekends. And if you check, that might throw up the same kind of red flags, especially if you check and then later start showing a lot of aggression. I'm going to be like, wait a minute, he checked the flop, which would kind of suggest he had a medium strength hand, but then he raised later and that's not really consistent with him having a medium strength hand. I think he's sandbagging me. You know, once you start doing stuff like that, so like just having an idea of what your, what your baseline should be in a given situation, you're most of the way towards, um, towards making the right decision without ever thinking in terms of frequencies. If you're playing in super high roller tournaments, you need to be worrying about frequencies. Um, I don't worry about frequencies for the most part when I play. I have a sense of what my baselines are supposed to be. And then I ask myself, do I have a reason to make an exception with this hand or do I have an exploitative reason to make an exception with this hand? Man, that's good stuff. Like, you know, we haven't even talked about a specific hand and you're dropping all this wisdom. And I think that's kind of making your point. Like, it's about... It's about thinking, you know, about theoretically sort of what are, what are some of these overall concepts, what are these heuristics, what are these things that how, – how we can think about the game differently rather than just sort of a memorization tactic, this idea of micro-learning. So I love what you're doing here. Thanks. Even, even in the book when I give hand examples, um, I try to give you multiple hands. And so rather than just saying, like, you have ace-king and the flop is five-deuce-four, what do you do mm-hmm. now? You know, instead I'll say – what would you do with ace-king? What would you do with jack-jack? What would you do with seven-six? What would you do with, you know, and and asking you to think about a bunch of different types of hands. And then you start to see, um, because there's a relation. I mean, this is how you give your opponents tough decisions is you're playing different types of hands in the same way. Um, And that doesn't mean you're playing randomly, right? You're making uh, intelligent decisions and you're choosing hands that can benefit from the same kinds of things. So when you bet strong hands and weak hands, you're giving your opponent a tough decision, but both of those hands can benefit from betting. The weak hands are happy to get folds, the strong hands are happy to get calls. You're not necessarily going to bet medium strength hands. Even though that might be deceptive, medium strength hands often don't have a lot to gain from betting, at least not on the river. On the flop or the turn, sometimes they do. Sometimes even medium strength hands are kind of interested in getting folds. And that's where things, and we have board covers to consider. Like, that's why things get more complicated on these early streets. And that was really what I wanted to like sink my teeth into more. You know, the, the, the first book, I talk a little bit more simplistically about just these like polarized ranges. The ace-king-queen game does make an appearance in the second book, but it's more of like an introductory concept. And then we move into more realistic poker scenarios where we are taking into consideration the fact that uh, the hand values can change. That was so, so cool because when I listened to you and Nate on the Thinking Poker podcast, I, Nate always says, <laughs> well, what part of my range would I check here? And, and I always wonder, what is he talking about? What does that really mean? <laughs> and I think you just kind of put it, all, put it all together in a concept that I finally understand what he's talking about. So next time I listen to the podcast, I'm going to listen for Nate to say that because I know he's going to say it. <laughs> and I'm going to understand what he means now. This is That's great. awesome. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and we love, for what it's worth, uh, we love having Nate on, man. I'd never met him before. Fantastic dude. Great guest. So thanks for uh, letting him come on our show and spread his <laughs> wisdom. But uh, I, I want to respect your time. We can obviously talk for hours and hours and hours. You guys who are listening, uh, his name is Andrew Brokus. Uh, he, he's the host of the Thinking Poker podcast. Uh, there's three things you need to do. Uh, listen to the Thinking Poker podcast, 
go buy and read Play Optimal Poker and go buy and read Play Optimal Poker 2 and then come talk to us about it. <laughs> you can talk to Andrew, talk to Nate, but you can also talk to us about it. Let us know how it is. But uh, Andrew, uh, as always, man, you are a phenomenal guest. Thank you for uh, allowing me to kind of go into the, the world outside of poker for a little bit uh, just to kind of get your thoughts. But uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, thank you, guys. I always enjoy talking to you all. And, and uh, you know, I'm grateful to you for sharing the book with your audience and especially doing that whole book club thing and everything. That was uh, you know, very, very cool experience. Thanks. Awesome. So, so real quick, uh, people want to find you and they don't know where you are. Uh, how is that done? Uh, so the, the central finding point is thinkingpoker.net. Uh, and so that's where you'll find links for, well, I mean, you'll find the podcast there. You'll find links for uh, coaching. You can find links to the training sites where I make videos. Uh, I'm at Thinking Poker on Twitter. Um, Andrew at thinkingpoker.net if you want to email me. And then the book is available either on Amazon or uh, the ebook. You can also get directly from me at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, main difference there being, so Amazon is the only place for a paperback book. Um, if you want an ebook that's not Kindle, uh, so Amazon, you can also obviously get a Kindle book from Amazon. If you want a PDF or an EPUB, which is a file that you could read on other e-readers, like if you have a Nook, for, I don't know how many people have Nooks anymore, but if you have an e-reader that's not a Kindle, um, you, then you're not going to be able to use a Kindle file. So you can get a PDF or an EPUB um, along with the Kindle file if you get it at nitcast.com. And I'm happy to uh, re-explain any of that if you just hit me up <laughs> on Twitter or email me or, or whatever. I can help you figure out uh, what makes sense for you and whether the book makes sense for you. Um, and I do recommend people start with the first one if you've not read the first one yet. Oh, and the first awesome. one is, is deeply discounted right now. Um, the ebook, uh, the, usually the, the first one was selling for $30. The ebook right now is ten dollars or nine ninety nine on um, Amazon and, and through my store. So this is a good time to check it out if you've been curious. Perfect. Well, Andrew Brokus, once again, thanks so much. Uh, we will certainly be in touch. We'll have you back on at some point. But uh, good luck with with the sales of Pop Two, and uh, we'll for sure be involved. And it'll probably end up being a another one of our book studies. We all love the first one so much. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. All right. We got some we got some uh, housekeeping stuff to do, so you can feel free to sign off. We'll keep going here. All right. Have a good night. All right. Take care. All right. Well, there he goes, guys. Hey, we've got about uh, five minutes before I have to leave. So I know we're going to be a little bit longer on that. So I'm going to put Jim in the hot seat. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give my update and then I'll let you kind of direct the round robin uh, after that. We've been joined by the wonderful Taylor Moss as well, just in time. Uh, how are you doing, Taylor? Good to see you. Uh, so I'll give my update and then you guys can do the round robin thing. I'll just keep it recording. You guys have have fun with it. But uh so if my update, uh, real quick, it, Taylor just jumped on, but one thing I just wanted to mention is uh, we had like a dozen people jump on uh, on Saturday, and probably like 15, I guess, kind of coming in and out. Uh, we did our virtual rail for Taylor. I know it wasn't quite the result that Taylor was looking for, but man, we had so much fun just railing and being community and doing that. So if you guys out there are like, have a big thing coming on, you're going to be streaming it, uh, let us know. And we'll also let you know about these other things that, that we're privy to. Uh, and we'll do more of those Zoom things because I think people just really, really enjoyed hanging out and kind of breaking down hands and, and wondering what Taylor had in different spots and that sort of thing. So thanks for you guys who jumped on there. Super fun. Uh, we also, a uh, reminder, we have our next Play and Hang coming up in June. Uh, Jim, I forget the date, but uh, what we're going to be doing uh, with that is we're going to be uh, opening that up as a drawing for folks that have played in the home game. Uh, you'll be invited to come and join me. We'll play a one-table thing and we'll 
have some pros stop by and say hi. Jim, do you have the date on that by, by any chance? Off, it's the uh, third. It's always going to be the third Wednesday of the month. That'll make it nice and easy to remember. I'm not sure what so the, the calendar 17th. date is that day. That I can do the right. math. I can't remember. I can't remember third Wednesday, but I can calculate third Wednesday. <laughs> there you go. Between so us, we're, we're a hell of a team. <laughs> that's why we're a good team, right? So uh, we'll we'll let you know uh, on that deal. And then the last thing is just uh, the merchandise has been updated on a rec.poker slash merchandise. Uh, so we do monthly orders on that stuff. Go check it out. We got all kinds of stuff. People have been begging uh, for the last year for, can we have zip-up hoodies? Can we have long sleeve shirts? Can we have crew necks? Can we have different colors? Can we have embroidered names? That's all available now. Uh, and so it's it's out there now, and it's going to be a you know a big part of the new website as well. So if you have any questions on that, reach out to me, and we'll get you get you all geared up uh, for Rec Poker going forward. So with that, uh, I'm going to sign off. Thanks everybody. Uh, these guys will take from here. Right on. Steve always makes this look so easy, but it's actually really hard. <laughs> I'm going to come in here and muck it up, but <laughs> thanks, Steve, for the handoff. Um, yeah, it is so exciting. It's June 1st. On a personal note, that's a birthday month for me. So I'm just saying, if anyone wants to send any cards or cases of Grolsch, there's an occasion coming up that makes it well worth it. It's like $100 uh, so to, to send up to Canada. So just forget that. <laughs> I'm never sending you anything again, my friend. Well, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm planning on winning one of those silver pins. You're going to have to get that in the envelope oh, okay. one of these days. And now I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to stick around for one last little ribbing. That's yeah. so classic, Steve. And yeah, Steve, your mic is still on. So get those sarcastic comments. Yeah, there he goes. Um, speaking of mics being on, John, I don't know if you want to get us started talking about the next uh, uh, slate of home games and what's coming up on that front. Sure. Uh, our... No Limit Hold'em series is going to be playing on June 3rd, the first Wednesday of the month. And June 10th is our mixed game series, and it's going to be Badoogie this month. And there is a training video available. If you go to the Rec Poker Home Game page, you'll be able to see that there. And we also have our Tournament of Champions. So if you won a social distancing series, uh, during the month of May, on June 8th, you will be able to play in the Tournament of Champions. There are 22 players that have uh, are eligible for that, two of which are on this podcast right now, Rob and myself. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, Jim, you, you just didn't qualify this month. It's, I, you know what? Even last night, it was the last night possible, and I got away to third, and uh, I got taken out on, on a kicker kicker issue. I, I had kicker problems, and that was enough. So we didn't get the win for Canada. And guys, I know, John, you were we just like to interrupt you as kind of part of the bit here, turn, uh, interrupting you, turning your mic off. It's, it's We have fun. Um, we were talking about what to do about this whole bet thing, and I'm glad that Steve's gone, because he technically is committed by the standards of the bet. He's technically committed to doing the singing on the script thing because our friend uh, uh, from Mexico won that game. But the asterisk just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel very Canadian and it doesn't feel very rec poker to be pressing the case on an asterisk like that. So what do you guys think? We talked about, should we make them sing on the asterisk or should we sort of treat May as like a push, a little tie and open up June as like an overtime period, go into extra innings. Now we've had some international support 
and see if we can actually get a Canadian win to erase the asterisk and proceed. Or we should just make him do it anyway. What do you guys think? I can't vote. Steve can't vote. What do you guys think? So originally he just said international winner. So That's right. That's right. At the time, there was very few international players other than Canadians. I know we had one guy from the UK that would play occasionally. And then all of a sudden, we get a guy from Mexico comes in. <laughs> a ringer. The, a ringer. Probably the second time he's played, and he ends up winning it, right? <laughs> That's so great. I know. It's great. You really I, helped. I don't know. I, you know, you look at the – if you look at the pure numbers um, of international players to USA players, it's, it's like 10, less than 10%. So I think if I don't, I don't, I don't want to let them off the hook. I'm thinking that the a number, I mean, it would be different if there's like 50 people from Australia, 50 people from Canada and 50 people from the United States. Well, that wouldn't be fair. Right. But in this case, it's like, you know, the, the, the percentage is so small. I, I think it has to count. Well, as the uh, devil's advocate, because I don't, I, don't want to let him off the hook either just to be clear um but originally when the bet was made that was before we had any of the social distancing stuff so originally there was only going to be two chances each month for someone else to win that's a good point and so and it was now steve did later say well okay the, the social distancing stuff is still going to count of course, that's not when we knew that it was going to be lasting as long as it is now. Either. So I'm kind of inclined to think of, okay, so let's, if a Canadian doesn't win in June, he still has to sing, but we'll make it relatively nice and, and not too oh, embarrassing for him. Oh, I see where you're going. However, if a Canadian wins in June, Mm-hmm. Then somehow we add a little extra juice to it. And, and I'm not exactly sure what that should be. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe maybe if, if right now he just has to sing it in wherever he wants, it gets videotaped, we put it on Facebook, and that's it. If a Canadian wins in June, he has to do it wearing a Canadian Mountie outfit. or yeah, That's a bad example because that might be a little too much work. But – you know, something to add it up, to boost it up just a little bit. So kind of like a, a a low bar and a higher bar. This feels like a winner so far to me. Again, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna vote officially, but I like where this is going. If we're if we're gonna do that, I think we need to have like a um, if we're gonna, like extra juice. We have to maybe for the next month to have like a a voice style judging panel if he's so he he subjects himself to singing and then he gets commentary about the the quality and makeup of of the song and what he could have done differently and how it hurt our ears and all those kinds of things I think that oh that's a great idea i love that and we should do like we should do a poll we should do a a, a poll in june or like a call for people so that we've got the whole month for people to, to like suggest embarrassing ways he could do it or like backdrops or wardrobe or things like that. Like we could really use crowdsource rec poker nation here. I got some good, exciting, embarrassing ideas for Steve. Would it hurt the podcast too much if uh, for the bad scenario, we make them just air that on the podcast that 
you know, his rendition of Oh Canada just has mm. to be in the rec poker podcast, not on social media, but for everyone to hear if yeah. they want to listen to his podcast. I like, I like that. that. I think we should probably do that either way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but we'll, we'll do it at the end. He won't have to do it live on the podcast. Right. You know, it'll That's be fair. pre-recorded and we'll just tack it onto the end. Yeah. Um, but or, or uh, the beginning, I don't know about the end or the beginning. <laughs> well, yeah. Or yeah, true. it's like the, you got to sing it before the event. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that is the main thing that most people want to listen to on that podcast. So <laughs> you're probably right. <sighs> okay. Well, what do you think guys? Uh, there's Rob, John, Chris, and Taylor, I think can all cast a vote here. Um, I can't, I can't do it according to hands cause half y'all have uh, your screens turned off, but um, all, all in favor of the uh, proposal? Aye. 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 All right. Okay, Steve, this will be fun for you to notice when you go through and have to edit this up later, but uh, we've upped the ante, bud. <laughs> I like agreeing to things when Steve's gone. This is great. This is, we should yeah. do this more often. Yeah. You know, I think we should find out everything that Steve should do when he's gone. That makes that, a lot of sense. That's great. I think- all right. So back to the uh, Tournament of Champions. Uh that's going to be on uh, Monday, June 8th, so make sure you get signed up. We still have 10 players who need to register for the uh, poker club. It's a different plo- poker club than our nightly tournament. Uh, those of you who played in last month, some of you may have noticed that you got suspended from the club. It's not because you did anything wrong. It's just only if you qualified this month are you still a member in the club fully uh there if you qualify the next month i'll reinstate you and then you can play from there uh then we've also got our social distancing series so we have the winners this last week are red devil mn guarav aurora i think that's his fourth win uh zgrt 1110 raul one illy jill burke one Power Cookies, Dan Bloom won. I think that's also his fourth win. Uh, Hawsey 8 won. Michael Hawes, that's at least his second. Captain Walleye, Rob Ansom, that's another one who's won uh, multiple times. And Keck Geek, Jacob K. That's Keck Geek's first one. And you need to contact Steve with your um contact information so he can mail you out your bronze pin that you won for that again if this is your second social distancing series win for the year you only get one bronze pin for the year for social distancing series so uh but you do get to count all of the wins that you have and you still get to brag about that so and there's that silver pin for that uh uh, that silver pin is going to be quite a quite a challenge i think because you only get a monthly opportunity to win one so there's only going to be so many and the people that you're competing against have all won a nightly tournament to be in that pool so it's a real it's a real uh it's a real tough spot yeah and i know for me you know i'm gonna try just a little bit harder when we have the nightly tournaments every night there are some nights where it's like okay i've got some stuff to do so i'm just gonna either run up a stack and win this thing or get out and go do something else. Well, with that silver tournament, I want that silver pin. So I'm going to be playing my hardest, which may be good or bad, but (laughs) 
it's like in the other monthlies we've got uh, on the first and second Wednesdays of the month where we've got these player of the year races. You know, you, you, you don't want to just get right out of that one either because there's some value to sticking around and getting some points as you go along as well. So it's a different strategy from night to night. It's very sophisticated. Yep. All right, nice. Well, Rob, uh, we've got the book study shaping up for June. What do you want? Give us a little word on that. Yeah, we got that starting on June 17th. We're going to be going through the game plan with Matt Matros. Um, it's a pretty, pretty cool book. I think everybody's going to really like it. If you want to up the aggression in your game, uh, you follow the game plan and it will automatically happen. So uh, it'll be fun going through that book. Um, we also have a, a little Twitter contest going on where we're going to give away a PDF version of the book. Um, what we need to do starting today is tweet um, at Matt Matros. So we're going to tag Matt and then uh, we're going to add the words uh, hashtag rec poker nation and hashtag book study. Uh, and you'll be entered for a free PDF of the game plan. The contest will close on June 14th, and then on June 15th, we will announce the winner, and you'll get a PDF version of the book just in time for the book club, which is starting on June 17th. What a great deal. And you can enter once per day. So starting today, that means you're going to have 14 entries into this contest. So get out there and tweet it out so everybody's aware of it and informed about it, and you get a chance to win a free copy of the book. That's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've been meaning to read that one. Uh, and this is going to be a great way to go through it chapter by chapter. And um, I, got, I got so much out of reading that uh, Play Optimal Poker together in that group with you guys. So I'm really excited for this. Uh, does anyone else have anything to throw in there? We've got um, our new seminar coming out this week, Chris. This one's on three betting, right? Yeah, so June is three betting. Uh, be coming out this week, and then we're going to be gearing up for July, which will be all about bluffing. So look for both of those coming your way for member content very soon. Fantastic. Um, and uh, I know we've got a couple exciting things that we're going to be talking about in June, but I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to leak it here, and because that's something I get in trouble for all the time anyway. But we'll wait till wait till the boss is back, and then he can do some of the talking. But in the meantime, go to rec.poker and check out all the great stuff we've got going on in there. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, and I'd like to thank our sponsors, Running Aces Hotel and Casino, and our website AMP and Learn Pro Poker. Who are all making our lives at Rec Poker here possible in a way that we couldn't uh, function without them. So thanks to them. Thanks to Andrew Brokus uh, at Thinking Poker and go to nitcast.com to check out all his great stuff. And thanks to everyone here on our panel. And thanks to Steve Fredland for all he does behind the scenes to make this stuff happen. And thank you to all of you. We'll see you again next week. Well, you know, now that you've closed it out, I didn't want to mention I'd kind of like to hear a little bit from Taylor about his experience on Saturday if you'd want to say mm. a sentence or two about that. Sure. I didn't want to put him on the spot, but if you will, I'll keep yeah. recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Steve mentioned it before, but I was one of the eight finalists for the learn pro poker, uh, main event, uh, staking competition. So one person got a $10,000 entry to a main event. Um, it didn't go well, got seventh. Um, Definitely a high level of poker that was being played there. Uh, it was definitely fun. It was very deep stacked and uh, a lot of uh, action that went all the way to the river. 
Uh, so definitely a fun day, but uh, still kind of a uh, little sad about how it went, but uh, it was still great to be in that spot. I'm happy that I was there. And uh, um, yeah, I don't know how your Zoom call went, but it sounded like it was great. And I definitely like very much appreciate the support uh, that I had from everyone here on the Rec Poker community. Uh, tuning in, watching together, and also from some of the panelists here for uh, helping me prepare before the event. So very appreciative. Thank you, everyone. I know we're all very proud of you. Yeah, and it was it was, it was was clear just from, I haven't had a chance to talk to you about the your whole cards and what everyone else had and that kind of thing, but just based on what we were seeing through the Zoom rail, it was clear that uh, you were making good decisions. Uh, you were getting put in some tough spots by the deck, I think. And, um, you know, I don't think your result was uh, typical for your skill level compared to the field going into that tournament. I think you got some some run bad, and I can't wait to see your next opportunity to, to go in and uh, score a victory in an opportunity like that. So I'm looking, looking forward to that. Yeah, it was uh... a lot of uh, missed flops, a lot of uh, hands that played out very poorly for me. Uh, there's one hand early on. I get pocket queens, I'm all excited, and then the flop comes ace-king, something else. And it's like, okay, well, what else could go wrong when you have pocket kings or pocket queens? <laughs> Sorry. So kind of just uh, paved the way for the rest of the day. But it was a great example, and you know, you could tell that you were just keeping your cool and keeping a, keeping a good head on your shoulders, which is tough to do. You know, tilt management is important, especially in those spots where, like, why does the, why does the variance have to be showing up now, you know? Um, so, you know, my hat's off to you. That's uh, well done. Thanks. Uh, Andrew, did you want to uh, get into something? I know we've uh, uh, been talking about our Learning with Partners program, and we've got another one of those coming up in June. Uh, yeah, we do. We have uh, another Learning with Partners on June 10th at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, so it's ne- next week, Wednesday. It's coming up quick. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and kind of join us if you'd like. Otherwise, uh, you can check it out on the member- membership website afterwards. But in the meantime, you can also go to uh, resources uh, just to see what's going on with all of our affiliates out there. A lot of good stuff. Like we said last week, uh, uh, Solve for Why is $9.99 a month now, which is crazy deal but yep go ahead and check that out everybody that, that is a crazy deal and and i i've enjoyed being able to watch the videos that andrew's been putting together um once once the session's done we record them and we send them out to the membership to be able to review at their leisure um but even more fun than that is actually showing up during the session and then and you can you can just have andrew give you a, a guided tour of these premier content uh, sites so i'd really encourage members to show up and take advantage in the the interactive webinar because you can get a lot out of it that way um, all right. Does anyone have anything else to add? Any shots at Steve we should take before uh, he comes back? I guess that's it. All right. Well, out of respect uh, uh, for to our sponsors, I'm going to go one more time. Let's see if we can actually get Running Aces Hotel Track and Casino, saying it properly, uh, website amp, and learn pro poker. Thanks for all of you. Thanks to the panel, and we'll see you next week.